Hello, listeners of the Yellow Brick Road. Welcome to the Yellow Brick Road podcast, or as I sometimes refer to it, in the few instances that we do podcast intros, the green room, off air, away from the big pressures of live radio. As some of you may know, we had a guest appearance on the show recently. John Armstrong from the Manchester indie rock band The Speed of Sound came on the show to talk about the band's latest release, their fifth album, Museum of Tomorrow. Of course, that isn't the only thing we talked about on the two-hour broadcast. We also talked about music, radio, the underground scene, the internet, as well as listening to the album, all of which you can find in the CFRC archives, although inconveniently split up into two hour-long recordings, such as the archive. And because it wasn't a regular Sunday broadcast, it won't be up on the CFRC page for this show, which is cfrc.ca forward slash yellow underscore brit underscore road. It won't be up there either. But... Limited by technology, we are not, for in your hand, you hold power far surpassing the abilities of radio. A podcast! Well, that isn't strictly true, since with all the copyright restrictions that circle podcasting, the music part of this interview can't be included, although the album is linked. But if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you already know that. What the podcast does allow me to do, though, is include a little section of the interview that had to be cut for time on the radio. So this is a sort of exclusive, uncut version of the interview. It was a lot of fun, I'm very happy with it. And this is just one of the things I love about being on radio and being able to do this as a musician, right? To be able to talk to other musicians at length about their work. And I walk into an interview as an admirer of an album and I leave with a new friend. And a lot more, of course. So I will pipe down now and let you listen to the interview itself. Tune back in on Sunday or look out for next week's podcast. Write into the show. The email address is yellowbridgeroad at gmail.com. Connect with the show on Twitter if you want. The handle is yellowbridgecfrc. All of that, I do like getting your correspondence. With no further ado, here's the show. Hello, this is John A. from The Speed of Sound. This is John, the drummer from The Speed of Sound. This is Anne-Marie from The Speed of Sound. This is Kevin from The Speed of Sound. And you are listening to CFRC on 101.9 in Kingston, Ontario. You are indeed listening to CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario, and what a special occasion to be tuned into radio this is. Hello, my name is Rue, I host Yellow Bridge Road, CFRC's British music show every Sunday evening from 8 to 9pm, and I am here, appending your regular programming to bring you a special broadcast, a fascinating interview and an album listen, a brand new release in fact, from Manchester underground rock veterans, The Speed of Sound. They've just released their fifth studio album, it's called Museum of Tomorrow, and it's a concept album with a very interesting physical premise. They've turned the idea of an album into a living, breathing museum, an art gallery, the Museum of Tomorrow. I simply had to know more about this, so I caught up last week with John Armstrong, singer, guitarist and songwriter in the band, The Speed of Sound, to talk all about the record. We had a really interesting discussion. He was really kind to walk me through the entire album, give me a tour of the gallery, so to speak, artifact by artifact, and also to talk about the band's career, influences, and about music, art, society, the music industry, and oh, so much more. So much so that we needed to steal this two-hour slot to bring you the full thing. This one's a treat for your ears. We're playing the album as well, which is out now on Big Stir Records. You'll find it over at bigstirrecords.bandcamp.com. You can also find The Speed of Sound's previous work over on their Bandcamp page, thespeedofsound.bandcamp.com. So grab your copy, your official tour guide, and enter the museum with me. Of course, if you enjoy the show, 
are simply incensed by the concept of an hour of British music, I use the term slightly loosely, or just appreciate the pun that started with a chuckle and somehow spiralled into a full-blown radio show, do tune in to The Yellow Brick Road every Sunday evening from 8 to 9pm or catch the show, its playlists and artist links over on the show's podcast. Just Google The Yellow Brick Road. Get in touch with the show if you have anything at all you'd like to tell me, requests, submissions, feedback, etc. Anything, or if you're just feeling a bit lonely this autumn, hey, email yellowbrickroad at gmail.com. But for now, keeping you happy company is I, Rue, John Armstrong from The Speed of Sound and a lovely indie rock album called The Museum of Tomorrow. Enjoy the show. So you're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, we have a special guest on the show, which I'm really excited about, and I hope you are as well. We have the indie band from Manchester in England, The Speed of Sound. They've been making music since 1989. They're veterans of the underground scene, and they're back with a new release, their fifth studio album, Museum of Tomorrow, which released at the time of recording just yesterday, the 17th of September, on Big Stir Records. Now, the term indie undersells it a little bit. I think this album, it branches out to my ear, at least from synth rock to new wave, a bit of classic guitar, indie pop, even a bit of art rock and jazz. And it's an album to listen to. And joining us today on the line to talk all about it, I have John Armstrong, guitarist and vocalist in The Speed of Sound. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Rick. It's um, a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I I really love the idea of sort of the album as a museum of ideas, sort of in general, and in your case specifically, Tomorrow's Ideas, which is, I guess, a sort of twist on the whole museums being a peek into the past and albums themselves in a lot of people's minds being sort of things of the past. But in the last few years, I've heard a number of artists come up with sort of unique approaches to the album where they're like, the album format is dead, so I'm going to reinvent the album. But the idea of having it turned into a museum, that's definitely something new and really interesting. So I'd love to know how you came, how that idea came about. Um, yeah, it's, it goes back a long way. I mean, when I was a student, I was going to do a postgraduate course in museum creatorship. And my first job was at a museum. And museums are great places. They're, they're just really, really interesting. So I've always had an interest in that. And just sort of thinking about time itself as a concept. You've got the past, you've got the present, you've got the future. And in a sense, it's not linear because they're all at the same time, depending on where you are looking at it from. We're the future, or at least we were. We're now the past. And we think we're sort of really thrusting and now and modern we are going to be someone else's past and the museum of tomorrow will have stuff from today in it that the idea was basically uh, to show the early 21st century as a lived experience which is what most of the songs do as if those were artifacts that have been sort of dug up many years in the future and have been put on display as an exhibition in a gallery in a museum or two galleries in fact and um yeah that that's kind of where it came from so you're sort of looking at these things that have come away from their actual context and just trying to piece together what a society was like that produced this. Um, yes, it's, it's a concept album. <laughs> and yeah, I do think to your credit, it does that really well in the context of 
what's going on right now. I think it, it does sort of capture the themes really well. So I guess let's get talk, let's get talking about the record. So far from being a preserve of the past, it's actually quite a topical record to my ear. I'm hearing themes of, I guess, technology, capitalism, uh, nostalgia, a bit of political themes. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. So tell me a bit about the record. Um, yeah, um, it was always the plan with this one to actually make it as an album. So when I was writing the individual songs, I was aware that they weren't individual songs. They were going to be part of a bigger thing. And I, th I think that in itself is different from the way that a lot of albums just end up as these are the best songs that I have at the moment. And they all end up together and they don't always fit. Um, you, you'll have something that just doesn't have anything to do with any of the others. And it can sound a bit weird. This, these were always thought of as a set. It's seamless. Uh, the only gap is on the CD, I think about one second in between Gallery 1 and Gallery 2. And on the LP, it's where you flip it over to get to the other side. That's it. But it's, it's as if they're two continuous pieces of music. And uh, we actually mastered it for the vinyl as two continuous pieces of music. So it's, it's not individual songs as such. And that gives it a sense of continuity all the way through. There's a lot of different styles going on in there. And... The influences, uh, they sort of rise and fall within the different pieces in there. But it, because it's mastered as one thing, it sounds homogenous, like, like a single album. Um, I, I like albums. It's just they should be a journey. They should take you somewhere. And singles are great. But if you've got three minutes, five minutes these days, because you don't have to fit it on a 45, um, it's, not, it's not long enough. You want more. And um, yeah, so it, it was always, always conceived as an album. Wonderful. And do give us a tour of this gallery. Um, yes. So we, we've got um, Gallery One, um, which is obviously the first one. And um, we've got Tomorrow's World, which um, it's the, the opening line of that. Um, we were offered Star Trek, but they fed us soil and green. It sort of sets out a sense of um, disappointment, shall we say, with the actuality of the 21st century was compared with what we were told it was going to be like in the 1970s, when it felt as if we were moving forwards and everything was working for us and technology was a good thing and it would really help our lives. We would just, we would have leisure. And it seems it's not done that. Uh, sort of people are working more and more and more and longer and longer and longer hours and don't really seem to be getting very much for it. And um, yeah, we still don't have flying cars. It's um, a bit of a letdown, really. Um, I completely agree. Yeah, yes, uh, we, we want those, we want them. That, so that, that first line is actually etched into the vinyl on both sides. So you've got the first half on side one, the second half on side two. It's, yeah, it, it's sort of um, the catchphrase, the slogan, the battle cry of, of the <laughs> album. Um, it just, it sets up the position that we're starting from. We have Opium Eyes, which is really short. It's about one minute and 41 seconds and speeds up all the way through, not just each line. It, yeah, each line is basically faster than the previous one. It's not, we'll do a, a slower verse and a faster verse and a faster verse. It just, it's building all the time. 
and that sort of has a real sense of um, pulling forwards because of that. And that's basically about um, trying to survive by using exterior stimulants, shall we say, and that um, all, all it does is separate you further from actual reality. There was someone that I used to work with and her eyes just, she always looked stoned. She wasn't. That's just her normal expression. But that, that was the first thing that made me think opium eyes. Oh, that, actually, that's a good title. So, yeah, that, that was um, inspired by real life, shall we say. Um, Smokescreen, uh, which follows it, Exhibit C. Now, that's slightly different in that it's about sort of distraction techniques, that's a bit political and it's a bit about the way that the internet seems to work. Someone will just say, yes, but what if, or what about? And it is just to distract from, and by doing that to control the conversation, uh, to stop people talking about something else, you just throw a hand grenade into the room and the conversation has moved on. Um, and it's, yeah, uh, also the way that language itself has evolved um, and the way that words don't mean the same things that they used to mean. And that kind of relates to the 1984 thing where you reduce the number of words in the language. And if there's no word for it, you can't express it. And if you can't express it, you can't think it. And it's the general dumbing down of culture that I think we're looking at. And vocabulary contraction, I, I don't like that. There's an awful lot of really good words out there and we, we should use them, definitely. Um, and a lot of them should be in pop songs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I think relating to what you were saying, there were some studies a while ago where they looked at how the number of words used in songs had basically sort of reduced over a period of about 20, 40 years. Yes, um, definitely. And it's... It's not just the number of words, it's, it's the amount of repetition of mm -hmm. the words that are there as well that seems to have gone up. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame, I think. So, yeah, I, I feel as if it's my duty to put some of those words back, back again. Moving on, Exhibit D. Uh, we've got Zombie Century. And that's quite straightforward. Um, zombies are very fashionable at the moment. I think that's increased a lot over the past 20 years. I don't know if people in a kind of way sort of envy the zombies because they don't have to think. They don't have to do anything. They just shuffle along and do the boring things. And um, yeah, 21st century of life, it can be a lot like that. It's just the, the unthinking nature of it. So zombies kind of, they don't move smoothly. It's, it's a really sort of staggering, lilting shuffle thing they do. And zombie century has completely the opposite of that. It's a really bouncing stomp. And if a zombie tried to dance to that, they would just fall to pieces. That's kind of what that one's about just unthinking and acceptance of the lot in life rather than actual thoughts and concepts it's just not really thinking about what could happen instead yeah i mean i'm also getting a sense of sort of the brain eating kind of zombie in a kind yes. of a the way that again it's the dumbing down and of politics 
likes to dumb people down because it's easier to get people to understand really simple ideas. Yeah, I, I think that's a large chunk of it as well. Still, though, um, I really like the line, wake up and smell the English breakfast tea. Oh, yes. Uh, that's, that's the one that that one started with. Mm-hmm. And it just, uh, yeah, tea is my default drink. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where that came from, but I, I was extremely pleased when that happened. I just the rest of the song flowed out from there once I've got that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and tired exhibit e it's actually an expression that someone i knew used she wasn't very well she had terminal cancer and the the drugs that she was given uh she just said i feel wired and tired and i thought thank you that's a great line and i told her basically that the song came from there but it's 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 about stretching for euphoria and not quite being able to get there um, so again, there's a touch of disappointment to it, but that's it, this. This one has a kind of different feel to it. There's an awful lot of space around it, and it floats um, in, in a way that uh, certainly Zombie Century doesn't. We, we were playing a gig a few years ago, and someone came up to us afterwards and said uh, that they thought we sounded like the Stranglers. And while they were saying that, someone else came up to us and said that we sounded like Jefferson Airplane. And you can't do both of those at the same time. It's just not possible. So they must have been listening to different songs. <laughs> but I think uh, Wired and Tired is probably the one that we do that's the closest to Jefferson Airplane. The way it builds, kind of there's a, there's a peak towards the end. It's, it's a bit like White Rabbit um, in a very different way because that builds from the first note to the final note. And it's, that's building up in a spiral and a point. This different shape. But yeah, I think that's probably our most Jefferson Airplane. And yeah, that goes uh, into virtual reality part two. I can't tell you why it's called part two. (laughs) We'll have to wait and discuss that next year. No spoilers. Um, But yeah, it's, it's basically this is people retreating from normal life into a virtual world, uh, whether it's a video game or just spending all the time on the internet. It's a defense mechanism and escape mode, but the the way that that virtual world becomes more important than the real lived one, it's it's a bit of a shame. But if you are at work all the time and don't have very much money, I can see why that occurs. That again has uh, quite a different feel on it. We we actually used uh, piano on there. It's my youngest son, Henry, is doing the keyboards on the album. Uh, we haven't had that before. We'd always previously been a four-piece, um, apart from when we were a three-piece, which, <laughs> again, no keyboards. There was no way that we could get the piano into the recording studio, so we actually recorded that remotely, which was a bit of a challenge, interesting. But, um, yeah, so that's um, actual piano on there, which, again, gives it a really quite different feel and sound to, to the other pieces. Um, it, what that one does, um, 
that's a bit of a practical joke on myself is that each of the verses, the chord sequence is different, uh, not just in a different order, but there are different chords in each verse. And it, it just, it doesn't repeat. The song feels as if there's a lot of movement in there and it feels as if it's all in the same key, but it's, it's perpetually moving. When you listen back to it, knowing that it might hear it completely differently now. Yeah, so that, that one is a bit complicated. It's the, it's the only one on the album that we haven't played live, not just because of that, but also because it's the latest one that was written closest to when we recorded it. Um, but yeah, all, all the others have been taken out into the real world, um, where the, that one is just a studio piece. So you sort of uh, dipped your feet into the water with all the other songs? Yeah. Um, that they have all been played live at least once. Over the decades, we have played a lot of gigs, but we've never played the same set twice. There's always been something different in the list. We're much better at playing our own songs than other people's, but we do occasionally throw a cover in, and that will often be one that we've never played before. So just keep it fresh, keep it different. We always have something different in the set, because if you're playing songs for decades... They need to move, they need to change. Um, the oldest one that we've got is from 1983. There's a 1984 one as well. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of material. So we rotate and just don't play the same ones again. Um, yes, Exhibit G, Shadow Factory. A shadow factory, is, is, it's a term that goes back to the Second World War. It was a factory that would make parts for tanks or aeroplanes, but it wasn't the actual factory so that they would outsource to other places that wouldn't normally make it. They might normally be making furniture, but they would get the plans and they would start making wooden aeroplane wings. But it sounds like something completely different. So I, I just liked the sound of the phrase shadow factory in the context of the song. What it means is, is basically it's a place where all the darkness and nastiness of the 21st century emanates from. Uh, whether that's a school or the Houses of Parliament or any other strange institution. Basically, that's the idea behind it. It's one place that all these shadows are coming from and creeping across the land. In the day job, I used to park my car next to a derelict factory. It's just, it was falling to pieces, stuff growing out of it all over the place. It looked fantastic. I mean, if it was an art installation, I, I would probably pay to go and see it. But yeah, you don't have to, you park next to it, you see it there every day. But what I liked about it, particularly on the way to work, is you get out of the car and you look at this and all of the really intense stuff that goes on at work, it doesn't matter because in however many years, the whole place will be derelict. It, mm -hmm. All the craziness of the workplace, it doesn't mean anything. It's in vain. It's almost like a museum of its own. Uh, yes, it is a museum of redundant work. Um, if, if you go into the office having just seen that, it does kind of make you a bit more relaxed about what's going to happen. We did a photo shoot um, outside it, lost track of time, but it was relatively recently. And they were actually demolishing it while we were doing the photo shoot. The pictures look great, but you can't replicate them because the building's just not there anymore, which yeah, adds to it, really. It's great. So yes, that's that shadow factory. And it doesn't have a normal structure at all. Um, there are no verses and there's no chorus. There are two sections. Um, the front bit is the same as the back bit, and the middle bit is different. But you, you wouldn't call either of them a verse or a chorus. And in a sense, it is a progressive rock song, but it's only three minutes long. 
So it can't be. It's just compressed, and there's there's nothing wasted in there. Uh, again, I really like the keyboards in there. They add so many different layers. Yeah, it's one of my favorite songs on the album. Mm, yeah, it's that that one does go down very well when you play it live. And that kind of ends with Mrs. Google Translate saying, my God, it's full of stars, which is the line from the second 2001 film, 2010, I think. And sort of as he's disappearing into the Stargate, that's the phrase that happens. That ends the first gallery, the first side. was going to do it as a locked groove, like at the end of Sergeant Pepper, so the needle just never lifts out of it. But by doing it as a long, slow fade, it got the same effect and meant that we didn't have to do two different versions of it for the album and the CD. Uh, There's enough differences already. So, um, yeah, and it it probably works better. And, of course, while Needle going into the runoff groove, it has, we were offered Star Trek etched Mm -hmm. into it. Um, And, yeah, that's where we would turn it over and start Gallery 2. So there's seven songs on side one that they all run straight through into it. So in a sense, there's only one. Uh, You turn it over and you've got six on side two, but again, they're all run straight into each other. So it's two song suites, really. Um, Impossible Past. This, again, sort of links back to the museum concept and the way that people look at um, history in relation to themselves. And frequently people try to use their perception of history to justify their own current views. Their idea of what history like has no relation to what it really was like. Um, That doesn't matter to them because they're, they're not using it as actual history. They're just using it to justify their own ideas. And... Yeah, that's where the impossible past phrase came from. Rhyming that with compare and contrast, I'm a history graduate and there are only two history essays, basically. It's either discuss or compare and contrast. Once I realised that compare and contrast rhymed with impossible past, I was away. That's, that's the way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely piece of songwriting, honestly. Thank you. Thank you. It's... Um, it's a bit of a challenge that is quite high um, for singing. So we, we tend to do that one earlier on in the set. Um, it's getting close to the limits. <laughs> so, yeah, there are a lot of guitars overlaid in that, um, particularly in the instrumental section. There's, I think, two different feedback tracks and another lead guitar in the background, plus the 12-string, plus two rhythm guitars. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that. How does that work out live? Um, it's basically done with just the one guitar. Um, Anne-Marie plays uh, acoustic guitar on some of them. Uh, so when we do Shadow Factory Live, there's an acoustic guitar in that. But um, yeah, we run it with just the one guitar uh, when we're doing it live. It works too. If you look at uh, All Mod Cons, the Jams album from 1978, it's really, really layered with lots of different levels of feedback guitars going on in the background. And when they played it live, there was just the three of them. 
and it kind of worked. Um, and live music is different from recorded music. So if you're trying to play it the same way, uh, it just doesn't, doesn't come across the same. You can't. Um, so the way that I play it live is sort of an amalgamation of different guitar parts. So it's completely different to how I would play it in the, in the studio. But I mean, they are different things and to treat them differently is, is the right way to do it. It's a different experience, I imagine. I was going to say that, you know, I guess the energy wins out over simplicity in this case, but I guess you do make it kind of patching from here and there and sort of creating a new song almost live. Yes, it's, it's good because with this album, it actually sounded pretty much exactly the way that I wanted it to and imagined it before we set off recording. That doesn't always happen. Things will change and things will move. And yeah, they did. But it really worked. And what, what I hadn't realised was the way that running all the tracks together and segueing them with the special effects and the chord lines in between them, it gives it the pace of a live gig because you don't have the gaps in between. I knew I didn't want the standard two-second CD gaps that you get. Stong stops, one two next one starts it's kind of predictable and I, I just didn't want to do that um but yeah it really adds an awful lot of thrust and I, I knew I knew it was a good idea when we heard it back for the first time <laughs> I must say the album flows quite I guess cinematically you know with mm. uh, with the google translate acting as a sort of a voiceover towards the end of the first gallery yeah. I guess and coming back at the end of the second one as well mm -hmm. as a sense of continuity there um, yes, interesting that you should say cinematic. We've done um, videos for uh, three of the songs at the moment. Each of them is going to have their own separate video. And uh, when they're all finished, which will release at some point over the next year, but one at a time, when they're done, basically, um, there'll be another one that puts them together in the same sequence as the album is. So it will also be a short film. It's, it's a multimedia project. The vinyl edition has uh, an official museum guide with it, which is a 16-page A5 printed book. It's got the lyrics in it and the credits and a few other things, but it's, it's tactile and it's real, which is I mean, it's one of the reasons that we like to do actual artefacts as such rather than just an MP3 file. It's great to, to be able to pass the music around so easily. But in the old days, you, you would use a record and try and work stuff out from it. You could actually base a subculture from a collection of records. And you can't do that with an MP3. Uh, the artwork is just basically far too small. The major labels, they do an LP. They put it in a white bag inside the sleeve. And unless you're buying what they call a deluxe edition, which will have another three LPs with it and a heavy, heavyweight book and... Uh, probably a matching coffee table or something. It's just, it's not the same thing. Uh, whereas an independent label, you can do all the detail, but make it manageable. So it's its not, you, you don't need another room to keep that particular LP in. So yeah, that's what we were trying to do there and just tie it all together with the art. Yeah, I suppose uh, when you get just the MP3s, you kind of lose the physicality of it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it kind of devalues it a little bit as well. Yeah, I, I can see why people have smaller houses and people move a lot and too much stuff is too much stuff. But we, we do that as well. 
there is the digital download, but if people want the physical one, they can get something that is very, very physical and interactive. And I actually, I actually have the exhibition guide right here. Like you said, 16 oh, yes. pages. It's a sort of pamphlet walking you, I guess, through the museum, all the lyrics and everything. And it's interesting because it, it goes from being a sort of, um, it, it starts off looking a bit like an art history museum and ends up looking like a science sort of gallery, which mm. is quite interesting. Yes, it, it kind of moves through. Um, in the, the physical format, it looks and feels like a football program. Um, without the adverts and the lists of the players, but it's it's a sort of that in itself is a cultural reference, um, and it, it's it's not square, which it would be if you'd done it for a CD or an LP. It would be square but bigger. Um, actually, wanted it as A5 because that's the size that guidebooks are. It's it's small. You fold it up. It will go in your pocket, and you can look at it as you're going around the exhibits yeah yeah definitely it, it really helps with the the whole museum touring guide kind of image and as well as that the lyrics are bigger they're much easier mm -hmm. to read on there yes yes um it's to do that with a cd you'd have to have something that folds out and even on the lp you, you've got 297 by 297 millimeters in the square but fitting the lyrics for 13 songs on there it's which we did because there is a lyric sheet with the album, but it, it is quite difficult to read. So um, yeah, that adds an awful lot to it. And there is um, a PDF download of the guide with the CD and with the download. You're only actually missing the physical aspect of it. Um, yes, exhibit I, so Impossible Past, the chord fades and um, the next one is called Leaf Blower. And it starts with the sound of a leaf blower, uh, which basically counts us in. I think leaf blowers are probably the most useless invention of the 21st century. It's, it's really noisy, does something that you could already do, and essentially all it moves is a pile of leaves from your garden to your neighbour's garden or onto the street or into a pile that the wind then blows back and you have to do it again. There really doesn't seem to be much purpose for it apart from the noise. And um, not mentioning any names, but there are also a lot of politicians like that. And that is a big part of the 21st century and links into the dumbness and just the simplification of everything. So it's, it's looking at a certain kind of politician as a useless, noisy artifact, um, but done with a real dance groove. It bounces, it sways. Uh, yes. Yes, it's, it's almost indie jazz. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I play some peculiar chords that I don't actually know what they are. It's just my, my rule of, uh, if I don't know what the next one's going to be and I'm trying to work something out, move one finger and see what happens. So you, you end up at unusual places. And that was definitely not a chord I was expecting to do. But it, it does um, a kind of funky jazz uh, feel through to it. And um, there's... A bluesy guitar line there going on as well it's just if you've got lots of influences mix them up all, all the time that is the way to do it i think um so yes that's that's leaf blower and um it ends with everybody talking at the same time i actually recorded that in the cafe in an art gallery in manchester in the old days when you were allowed to go out and mm -hmm. uh, it's just all the conversation at the same time there's no way you can pick out 
anything anyone is saying is. But they're just, they're all talking. It's the Tower of Babel, which has just come away from this song about politicians who are just making a load of noise. And the people are as well. Um, so that, that kind of links it. And that goes straight into the Greenwich time signal pips. And we have Blood, Sweat and Tears, which is BST, which is also British summertime. And that, that's where the concept of that one came over. That's probably the darkest one on the whole album. I mean, there's a lot of dark topics, but it's kind of covered in a playful way, which strangely makes the dystopia feel a bit euphoric. But I, I do feel that there is still a sense of hope and things can change and things can improve. And although we aren't where we expected to be, that doesn't mean we won't get there. And yeah, that, that kind of joyous feel, I think, is, is there throughout the whole album. So Blood, Sweat and Tears is about personal debt and just the way that it crushes the life force and the joy out of existence. Um, yeah, please don't get in debt if you can. Yeah, so that, that's basically that, what that is. Uh, the way that people are treated as an economic asset by uh, financial institutions and just encouraged to be perpetually in debt. Um, there was a job I was interviewed for many years ago Basically, that they wanted people who were in debt because they would put up with the conditions that they had, didn't take the job. And that's not exactly the phrase that they used in the interview. But um, yeah, a job interview, it works both ways. You're interviewing them as well as they interviewing you. And I, I knew pretty soon on that I wasn't going to be working for them. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a power thing. If someone is in debt, then they are powerless. They've got to put up with an awful lot of stuff that mm -hmm. um, they shouldn't and wouldn't do otherwise. And also yeah. the, whole, the whole way that it's sort of wrapped up in this kind of positive, I guess, light, you know, where they're like, oh, you're in debt. Here's a good credit score, but it doesn't really mean anything. Yes. Uh, all, all it means is that you can get more debt. Mm -hmm. um, the, the better aspect is to not have any and not have a score. Um, and then they won't lend it to you, so you can't be in the position that you would have been otherwise. Um, yeah, it's as if the score is a good thing. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, Blood, Sweat and Tears ends with the chord trailing away, and that runs into running footsteps at the beginning of Charlotte. Charlotte is about uh, Charlotte Bronte. When would that be? 2016, yeah, we played a gig at Elizabeth Gaskell's house, a Victorian novelist in Manchester, and it's a big Victorian villa. And she was quite big in the cultural and societal scene in Manchester in the 1850s, as well as being a novelist. And she had lots of visitors who would come and see. And Charlotte Bronte was one of them. And they must have had a great conversation. I mean, both of them novelists and yeah, she, so Charlotte was staying with Elizabeth Gaskell and she had anxiety in a really bad way and wasn't used to cities having come from a tiny place in Yorkshire. And uh, basically someone came to the house as another visitor while she was there and she couldn't handle it. She disappeared and hid behind the curtain until the other guest had gone. And we were playing the gig in the room that happened in. Uh, with a painting of Elizabeth Gathgill and Charlotte Bronte on the wall. They're both looking at us. 
curtains were open, it was April, so the light was going dark as the gig progressed. And that was just such a spooky feeling. It, it was like they were watching us. Far too um, many people for her. Yes, basically. Um, and it felt like she was behind the curtain as well, um, which is good. That was also, I think, a week before Charlotte Bronte's 200th birthday. And the song had been written two weeks earlier. It was certainly the first time that we played it live and we hadn't had very long to rehearse it from. Uh, that was written for the occasion because I knew we're going to be playing in this room. We've got to do a song about it. That was like playing a gig in the 1850s. It's, it's still current and lots of people have anxiety. And I think the way that the 21st century works has um, magnified that. I think it's a lot more common now than it used to be. And uh, the, the way that Charlotte Bronte reacted was probably extreme. Um, I don't know how long she had to stand up behind the curtain for, but they can't have been comfortable. Uh, but once you're there, you can't get out. Um, so yeah, that, it's about something that was 170 years ago, but it's still current and it's still going to be happening into the future as well. It's quite a gothic feel in that one. Um, there's a lot of doom to it, but the chorus is just complete release. The keyboards are really big in that and the chords, I'm, I'm not ready for this, but she's um, ecstatic at the same time. It's, it's, it's quite strange. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where Charlotte comes from. I suppose in a way it's almost like a period piece. Yes. Um, yeah. It's in the, the Gothic literature and the Gothic sound. And it's the, the experience of playing it in that room was um, quite something, definitely. Yeah, that's Exhibit K. We have L next, which is uh, The Day the Earth Caught Fire. It's, it's about climate change, largely, and is quite straightforward in that. When I was working in 2018, the office I was at looked out over the hills around Manchester, and I could see that they were on fire. Um, the, the fires we had were nothing like the ones in California or Australia, but... Um, they were much more than we'd had previously. And it just seemed as if it was happening all around the world. The year after that, because 18 was really, really, really hot. It was an abnormal summer. The February after that, we had 20 degree heat in Manchester in February. It's supposed to be snowing. I mean, it's just the, the whole, the climate and the seasons have just given up. And um, it's as if they've just gone into a sulk and said, I don't, I don't know, just do what you want. And the weather makes it up. Um, we're, we're in a position where we've got to do something about it. And it, the day the earth caught fire is, it's, it's kind of a warning about that and a rallying cry. And um, again, it's, it's got a sense of euphoria to it. Um, this is the day the earth caught fire, but let's do something. We, we still can. And it, again, we've got the dystopia idea because a lot of people are still saying, oh, no, it isn't. And uh, um, it's, it's not a pantomime. It's much more serious than that. 
Um, and the first line of that is, is this Manchester or Mega City One? And it's kind of throwing the contrast between real life and uh, the Judge Dread type dystopia of 2000 AD, which laughably is 21 years in the past now. Um, it's very strange. When we play that one live, we basically substitute the name of wherever we are for Manchester in the first line. Uh, North Rhine Westphalia was a bit difficult to fit in, <laughs> but I, I think Anne Marie might have said Germany. <laughs> I'm sure it went um, down well, though. Oh, yes. Uh, it's, um, what, what's, what's unusual about that one? Yeah, we used the studio organ in that, and we ran that through rotating Leslie speakers. So it's it's got the coming and going and concertina as to the sound in there, and added a layer of wow wow guitar on the pre-chorus there. So there's there's a lot of suction going on in in that pre-chorus thing, and just the interplay between the wow wow and the Leslie speakers. I, I really like that. Very satisfied with the way the sound came out in there. And um, yeah, that just leads into Exhibit M, which is uh, the closing piece. Last orders. It's pretty quick and fairly short, and it sounds like it's a drinking song. Basically, the bar's going to close, this is last orders, get them in. Um, come on, come on, last orders is, is what the, the chorus is saying. But it's it's a bit different. Um, the military have a concept where you carry on doing what you were told to do until someone tells you to do something else, or you run out of potatoes to peel, or whatever it is. You just keep doing what it was. And a, a lot of these things, um, they become redundant. So people are doing things that are completely, totally unnecessary, but nobody's told them to stop. So they still do. You've got uh, the secret police in East Germany who are shoving documents through the shredder after the Berlin Wall has come down and their job has ended, basically. There's nothing, there's no need to shred this stuff because just the whole state has collapsed. Believe they should be doing so, they're doing it. No one's told them not to, so they carry on. Miracle Mike is referenced in there as well. Um, he was a chicken who um, actually lived after having his head cut off for I yeah. think, 18 months or so. And that's just such a great metaphor. It's, there's, there's no brain, but you're just living. Uh, it kind of links back to the zombie con concept from earlier. And um, the Japanese soldiers who were still unaware that the Second World War had ended in the 1970s, um, they're referenced in there as well. So it's just... That the idea of carrying on with something, even though it doesn't fit with what is going on outside in the world, it's blinkers and not looking at the bigger picture. The, we have um, assistance on that one. There is a chorus of uh, additional players, shall we say. I knew I wanted a really full sound on the chorus, as if there were a lot of people in the room or we were playing it at a live venue and everyone is joining in. And as a drinking song, it should have that lots of people shouting kind of feel to it. So I knew a couple of people from different countries and asked them and they said, yes, we can do this. And it was during lockdown. And it, it started to dawn on me that I could go for a full set of continents and get someone basically from all seven of the continents um, on the planet and just get them together virtually while in a state where basically no one could mix anyway. So yeah, we, we went for it. I went through, who do I know? Who do I know? Who do I know? And um, basically, yeah, we, we've got Brazil, we've got North America, we've got South Africa, we've got the UK, Japan, New Zealand, and cheated a little bit 
with Antarctica because there's an albatross mixed in with them. Wandering albatross, they don't have a country. They are stateless. And I quite like the idea of, yeah, mixing it in. And once you've got six, you need the seventh um, as a collector, as a completist. You've got to have that one. So, yeah, there's an albatross mixed in with them as well. And I should probably name them. Uh, we have Tuanda. We have Dolph Cheney. We have Courtney Visser. We have Robbie Allen. We have Chris Jack. And we have Sam Fisher. And I don't know the name of the albatross, but the audio came from British Antarctic Survey. So thank you to them. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, that's the concept of last orders. And it repeats again with the Google Translate lady just saying last orders, last orders, last orders, last orders, uh, which fades away. And uh, that's the point where you turn it over again and play it again. Last orders, last orders, last orders, last orders, last orders, last orders. I was also getting a sense from last orders of sort of doing something once it's done. Just, I guess, to sort of find some purpose in doing it. You know, that's mm. sort of do it to sort of put off the idea that there's like no meaning to it. Yes, I mean that that's that's something I hadn't thought of, but it does apply. This is great because as soon as you put something out into the wider world it gets reinterpreted and there are things that you hadn't thought of that you think yes and that's 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 one of them um yeah so the the actual doing of it justifies it in in its own sense and um yeah a really big project you just you have to do a lot of planning to it and um we recorded it i think in 23 different recording sessions um, over an actual year. The first one was on 10th of February, 2019. We finished it on the 9th of February, 2020, which was about four or five weeks before the first lockdown. Um, I'm so pleased we finished recording it by then. Uh, the mixing and the mastering took an awful lot longer because, because of that, but we, we could do it because we'd actually finished the recording. Yeah. So many other projects just got stuck part of the way through. Uh, we, we were very lucky. Um, and a lot of those sessions, there were sort of three hour ones done after the working day in the evening. And the studio had um, basically, you've got to be out of the building by 9 pm. So, yeah, you haven't got very much time to do anything in. So, the, the way that we function is we record live as if we were playing a gig with everybody in the studio um, and we'll keep everything as uh, guide tracks basically essentially what we're getting there is the drums but we with recording everything you've still got all the cues in place so when you're re-recording you're not just listening to the drums um, we years ago we were recording at another studio and we set up played everything live and came back to do everything else. All they'd got is the drums. And you just think, where am I? <laughs> it's just what's going on? Because you, 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 yeah, the drums are great for keeping time, but they don't always tell you where you are. And it's just, that's, that struck me as strange. Uh, I think my fault for not explaining that this is actually how we work best. 
when we were doing it, but I just, it hadn't occurred to me that people would do it that way. And I think that's the way that most modern recording is done. It's just record a layer, put a layer on top, put a layer on top. But it means that you're thinking one, two, three, four, or one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, depending on the timing of the song, you're not feeling it. And I, I think that removes a layer of emotion. If you've got everything there and you can hear a bass part, not necessarily the one that's going to be on the record, but you can know where your cues are and you can respond to that. Um, you mentioned jazz earlier, and I think um, in a sense we are a jazz band because we're listening to each other and we improvise and we change things. And it just, yeah, we, we need to be able to hear each other to be able to do it. Um, but as well as that, with the planning, um, I, I would go in for a session and we'd do all the 12-string parts on all the songs that have a 12-string um, because we had the basic tracks for everything else there uh, or all the acoustic guitars um, on the ones that have acoustic guitars in. So we're building all of them at the same time rather than doing one song, finish it, move on. And again, I think that's part of the sense of continuity is because they were recorded at the same time as each other, um, rather than just one at a time and then you do another one. It's 10 or 11 months later. Um, you don't have the same sort of sense of continuity, um, which is it, important for an album. Yeah, I, I do think that the, al the album sort of flows evenly in terms of energy. It sort of keeps the energy up throughout. It doesn't feel disconnected. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's got a good shape to it. And um, that's, it's kind of another thing that I'm possibly thinking about in a different way to other people. It's, I'm looking much further ahead in what I'm playing. If I'm improvising a guitar break, I'm not just thinking this bar, this bar, this bar. I'm, I'm looking across however big the passage is and building a structure to go across all of it um, rather than just smaller sections that will stick together. And um, when you're making a live set list or putting an album together, the shape's really important. And that there are um, peaks and troughs that you've got to follow patterns with. Um, if it's all the same pace or all in the same key, uh, you lose people's attentions. And, um, and with this one as well, we were limited because of the physical size that you can fit on a vinyl LP. Um, essentially, unless you're a really big studio like EMI, you've got a limit of 19 minutes and 20 seconds. And if you go over that, uh, you're going to deteriorate the sound quality or it's going to have problems with skipping uh, the grooves too close together. You've got a real limit on that. And before we started recording, I'd already worked out what the sequence was going to be and made sure that they all fit inside that. Um, interestingly, it doesn't because I was sure they'd said 19 minutes and 30 seconds. So gallery one is four seconds too long. Um, and yeah, I, I checked with them once I realized that. And they said, um, four seconds over on one side is okay. So that, that, was, that was a relief. <laughs> um, 
but yeah you, it's just you, you've got to be aware of the, the physicality of it when you're doing the actual planning um because again if you're recording one song at a time the chances of getting to fit and use the maximum space as well because uh, I, I didn't want to have the possibility of maybe having put another song on there if we'd arranged them in a different sequence um, yeah just use the maximum space yeah definitely so that's that's the whole album and so I, I just want to ask you about, I guess, the sound of the album. We've discussed the themes and the lyrics mm. and the context that it was made in. But the album, if you sit to listen to it from start to finish, it does have a really diverse sound. Like I was saying, I'm hearing that sort of melodic underground indie vibe. Also some lovely synth-infused new wave kind of stuff on songs like Shadow Factory, which, as I mm. mentioned, I really like. There's a bit of psychedelia. And uh, feel free to correct me, but even a bit of um velvet underground on songs like impossible past and like i mentioned some lovely indie jazz on songs like leaf blower so there's a lot of stuff happening in the album so i'd love to know what your influences are and basically what, what you were listening to while making this album um yes good question as a band we've all got different influences um but there's an element of overlap there's not a lot of overlap with some bands you, you get basically all of them and they all love oh i don't know oasis and they sound like oasis because that that's it um we're all coming from slightly different places and bringing a lot of different aspects into it and which one of those happens to be higher up in that particular song or that particular part of the song uh just changes throughout but consistency wise it's still always sounding like us throughout regardless of the mix of the different aspects in there uh, i listen to a lot of diverse music it's uh my dad was really into um blues and uh, traditional english folk he played in a folk band for a very long time and uh, my mum uh classical music and jazz so the radio wouldn't be on when i was small and growing up that i'd be getting completely different influences to the other people that I'd be at school with or whatever, because I just wasn't hearing the stuff that they heard. Yeah, okay, we'd watched Up of the Pops, but it wasn't there as a constant. Uh, the music in the house was really quite different. I also have a radio show. Radio shows are great, but they just are. And you, you get sent so much great music. It's, it's oh, fantastic. Yes. It's, um, yeah, Mad Wasp Radio. Uh, which is internet-based. My show's called Tuning Up. It's weekly, and uh, basically it's on on a Sunday and uh, repeated twice during the week. It's great. Been doing that for four years now. It goes on mixed out afterwards. And in a couple of weeks, there'll be nine days back-to-back -back of um, archive. You'll catch up. It's good. Um, before that, I was on a different station called All FM, and uh, yeah, did that for four years as well. That they overlapped for a year, and that was just too much. Um, but again, it, you hear so much music that you're sent, and I, I just don't need to listen to the mainstream stuff that's out there because that there isn't time. It's it's not possible to listen to everything that I get sent anyway. So yeah, it's just aware of what's going on out there, but not in the major label sort of way. Velvet Underground, yes, 
I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely part of the mix. That thing where everyone who heard the Velvet Underground went out and started a band is probably true and still is, I think. Um, but they influence people who have not even heard them because the people that they've heard started because they heard the Velvet Underground. That's an incredible sort of um, stature to have. The ones that made me want to start playing guitar were probably Small Faces and the chords. I, I just you listen to a lot of music and a lot of it really grabs you. But those were the two that made me want to pick up a guitar the first time round. When I'm hearing stuff and thinking, do I want to play this on the radio? I have a thing called the do I want to join in test. And if it makes me want to play with them, yes, that's definite. I will play this. It's, it's diverse influences and picking the right influence for the song. The way the writing process works with us is basically I'm the songwriter and it always starts with the lyrics. So that they're written separately to the rest of the song as essentially poetry to start with. I work on syllable counts for the lines so that there's no melody there as such when it, when it started out. I know it's going to fit to itself, but I don't know what the tune's going to be. And that gives us a lot of freedom to basically make sure that the music matches what the word's trying to do rather than the other way around where you're already tied to a strict pattern because you've got a melody. I've tried it the way around and it just doesn't work for me. It's, it's not so much that I come up with predicto rhymes, moon, June stuff, but it's just I don't get the freedom to, to be able to work out what the patterns are and to put the phrases in. I mean, the um, wake up and smell the English breakfast tea, that it's, I have a notebook where I just write down phrases that I know are going to be in songs later. And when I've got the time and the mental space, they come out. So that it's as if they're sort of percolating in the back of the mind during that time, processing time. I, I don't think there's such a thing as writer's block. It's just you, you don't have the right mental state at that time or space to be able to do it and i tend to write in bunches so it's just i've got time now and they'll come out two three sometimes four a day but it can be months in between because you just haven't had the right time or place to be able to do it and yeah the music goes on afterwards um sometimes i know what the parts are going to be more or less so I'll either do a fairly full demo or explain when we're in rehearsal, I think this is what we should try first. And we do it and it'll normally work. Sometimes it doesn't, we'll try something else. But um, a lot of the time I'll know my chords, I'll know my parts and we'll just build from that. And I think uh, setting, I guess, music to words rather than words to music, it also kind of fits in with the whole vibe I'm getting from the album of it being a bit more of a cinematic experience. Yes, because you're putting music to something that's already there, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, obviously is the way that film music works. You, you don't do the score first. <laughs> the videos that we're doing were kind of limited because uh, lockdown. And Anne-Marie is a senior nurse, um, so she's ridiculously busy at the moment. Her shifts were always the most difficult thing to arrange rehearsals around but uh, even if we could it would still be tricky at the moment so yeah basically we can't get together so because of that I've had to do animated videos because we, we can't actually get together and that's another one of those um, mother of invention things I, I think they're working really quite well we've done a nine and a half minute video which is basically a trailer for the album sort of 40 seconds of each of the songs. So it's the album, but in really compressed form, um, nine and a half minutes, sort of as a taster. 
so people can as you would with the spotify playlist people will know the first 40 seconds or so but they can they can do it with a visual thing as well i think that's that's much more engaging um, there'll be full length videos for each of the songs as we go through them. Another question. So I was reading about this. Legend has it that uh, the band started on the day Andy Warhol died. Is that true? Um, yes. Um, it's the band before this band. Okay. Um, but yeah, essentially it, it is. Um, that was in 1987. And... Um, the people in the student house I was in, it was a big house, I think seven, there were eight people there. And um, we just saw it on the news. And uh, I think it was Steve said, um, we should form a band. We should do it today. Um, so we did, um, basically. Uh, it was a lot more garage punk than um, uh, the current manifestation. But I mean, that's one of the influences. And yeah, some of the songs from that area carried forward and we've done them on previous albums as the speed of sound. So yeah, that, that was um, two years before this band started, but it's it's part of the same prehistory because some of the songs are carried forward and I mean, you, you have to be influenced by things as, as they happen. Mm-hmm. And I guess, like you mentioned, you guys have been around for quite a while. You're basically veterans on the underground scene. So and since we're talking about, I guess, the past, the present, the future, how have, I guess, you seen the music scene change over time? Um, it's, I sort of live in the underground aspect of it um, rather than the, uh, the bigger thing. You have the internet and it's, it's great because music is international and you can just go global. You can get your music out to everyone if they want to listen to it. It's there. Telling people it's there is a bit difficult because people don't want to yeah. listen. And also getting them to actually listen to it is a bit difficult as well. Because as you know, there's so much of it. And the internet, it's a blizzard with all the snow blowing straight in your face. And if that happens, you shut your eyes. So you, you're not really looking at what's there. In modern terms, the internet seems as if it's been here for such a long time, but it's, it's still very new. And that ability to be able to reach people just wasn't there before at all. We had the cassette culture, which basically was independent musicians posting physically cassettes to each other and to radio stations and to magazines. Uh, So the cassette itself was a sort of email and cassettes were used for early computer programs. It's, it's, It's very similar. And underground radio and the old cassette culture are fairly similar because of the way that they operate. It's just magnified and much bigger and smoother and better than it used to be. Um, and the reach from that is much wider than it used to be as well, because the, the radio stations and the magazines can reach more people to start with than they could before. That's, that's really good. And the cost of recording has just dropped straight down. Cassette, it's postable. It didn't weigh very much. It's not the ideal form for recorded music in many, many, many ways, but it was the only way that independent artists could afford to release stuff. The thought of doing vinyl LP, it was not a possibility then. We did the first EP in um, 1989. The actual release date of that is the same date as the release of this album. Um, 
tidy. It wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. It just ended up like that. We knew it was around the date, but it just it was supposed to be a bit later. It came forward and just landed there. And that's 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 nice. It's synchronicitous. But yeah, the gear that I got to do the first two albums uh, cost less than the recording sessions for the first EP and that they were done as home recordings, obviously this one and the last one we were recording in the studio. But you can do that. You can record everything in your own house and uh, you can plot and record an orchestral score um, in your own bedroom if you want these days and it will sound pretty much as if it is an orchestra playing the technology is great and it's enabled so many people to be able to do it that is it's a major improvement i think and on that front i've also noticed the the thing you were saying about reach i so i get submissions from people from basically all over the world even though we're a canadian station you'd think in fact not even just a canadian station we're basically kind of based in Kingston, Ontario only. And it's you'd think Kingston is firstly a place that I guess people within the province, Ontario, also basically don't know of if they haven't been here. So mm. with the radio show sort of being on the internet and everything, its reach has also been so massive. Like I get submissions. I, I got your uh, your album from Big Star, which is over in California, which mm. I didn't think would have ever been able to reach out to us. And I know, for example, uh, there are bands from, I guess, there's some bands from India who there isn't really a great kind of live scene or like a local um, record culture or any such thing. But a lot of them have been able to reach out in the same way to a lot of places outside. and almost every one of them that I know of are signed to labels in other parts of the world. Someone's on a label yeah. in Mississippi, someone's over in, on a label in Australia. And it's, it's, I mean, you don't think that would have been able to happen. It's almost impossible. Yes. It's certainly without the internet, it, it wouldn't have been able to. And sort of alternative cultures, you get a few people in one place and that's it. Mm-hmm. And they, they can't, bond they can't build because they're just isolated from the others the the internet means that you can just link up and join and collaborate and do stuff together i mean we're we're in manchester uk and the labels in in la Mm -hmm. um that it shouldn't really be able to happen like that um and we met them partly through my own radio submissions because i knew I was, I was getting theirs and I knew if it said Big Star Records, I was thinking I'm probably going to like this because they haven't done one yet that I don't. So that's, that's always a good sign. Um, but there was a Swedish band who um, basically needed a Manchester gig and we gigged with them, we put them on, we hosted the gig and they were indeed, uh, two words, Swedish, and they were in the process of putting out their album with Big Star Records at the time that we were gigging to them. It just all tied the whole thing together. It just, it, it's, it's the international nature of it. It's absolutely great. And people think in sort of small local tribal terms and the whole countries thing, but it, it's, it's not. It's about people that like the same thing and they, they may live anywhere. There are, on my own radio show, I've, I've, I've played bands from Indonesia 
and um, lots of countries. Our, ourselves, I think we, we've been played in 20-something different countries on a lot of different radio stations. And it's, it's, it's not about local scenes. There's no such thing as local when you have the internet, because as soon as you put anything on that, it's at least global. Yeah, and it's more connected. And everyone can get it. I, I guess it's more connected by sound and ideas rather than location now. Mm, yes, definitely. Style, if you like the style of whatever it is, you can search for something of that style, then you will find something that you like. It's it's difficult with the internet because the, the first thing the internet asks as a band is, what's your genre? And um, it, it just, what, what do you say? What do you pick? I mean, if you are that band that sound exactly like Oasis, you can say, we sound like Oasis and tick all those appropriate boxes and everyone will know what you sound like. If you are mixing lots of different aspects of it, just, and if you have different feels within different songs, it's, that, that can be quite difficult. Too many labels and um, not any labels at all. Yes, exactly. And the, the fracturedness of, of genres at the moment, mm. um, and the way that they change, I mean, rhythm and blues doesn't mean rhythm and blues anymore. Mm -hmm. um, R and B and R and B, depending on whether you spell it with an and or an ampersand, it's it, they're completely different things. It's meaningless. And I think even even um, genres like punk these days are more about a sort of ideology, a state of mind, rather than necessarily that three piece sound. Yes. Yeah, I, I, with um, punk and a lot of the other subcultures. I, I do think it's about state of mind mm -hmm. rather than a haircut yeah, for sure. or, or the settings on your amplifier. It's um, the freedom and the, the DIY aspect of it. The, that's, um, that, that comes from punk and you've got experimentation, which comes from psychedelia and the 60s when people were learning that you could do different things while you're recording and play things differently and i think those are the two main starting points that we have just um the complete diy ethos and the let's see what we can do aspect and um the way that we play songs live um they mutate they change you have to and Sort of, it's it's not like we're trying to replicate what we did on an album, however many years ago. It's just this is how we play it today. That was how we played it then. Um, so otherwise, you end up being in your own covers band. You're you're just playing them. It's it's a recitation rather than an actual gig. Yes. Um, it's just let's do this one again rather than let's play that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's got to live and it's got to move and it's got to change. And I, I just like the improvisation aspect of that. And I suppose the energy and atmosphere of a particular gig will also, would also definitely influence how the song ends up sounding on a particular day. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a thing that um, I think a lot of audiences kind of forget is that so much of the atmosphere is actually down to them. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, and feeding off each other. But with any music you haven't heard before, you've got to try and meet it halfway. Um, or you're, you're just, it's, you're going to miss it. 
um, whether it's live or recording. You've, you've got a sort of open mind and what's in this? What does it taste like? And I suppose through all of these internet cultures of music and the changing nature of how music has been recorded, how it's been distributed, and I guess there's a whole other thing to talk about if you look at the different ways of distribution and which ones of them have been slightly more meaningful and better for artists than others. But I guess throughout all of this, live music has sort of remained as a kind of a constant, right? So during the energy of the live gig. So um, I, I guess this leads into the question, are you guys going on tour? Um, we're not thinking about live until into next year, um, basically because the situation that it is out there at the moment. I know a lot of people who've moved gigs four or five yeah. times and they just keep creeping back. And yes, uh, the government has said, it's okay, you can do this now. But it, it doesn't look to me as if that's a very good idea just yet. It just doesn't um, feel like it's the, the right time yet. Yeah. I, I, I don't think so. And we'll basically just keep assessing the situation and uh, work out when we think it's sensible and safe for all the people who are going to be there. We don't want to be responsible for somebody getting mm -hmm. ill um, indirectly or, or whatever. I mean, if they pass it to someone who's someone else, who's, um, it just it doesn't seem the right time for people to be getting together again yet. I know they are and a lot of people think it is but it just it doesn't seem it to me so we, we'll assess that on a rolling basis but we, we just decided that it's easiest to um just say no not this year um it's weird putting an album out without gigging it um it's it is a bit of a challenge but in a sense as an independent you don't have the whole staff that sony or Universal or Warner have, you're doing that, and in our case, with the assistance of Big Stir, but there's, there's only two or three of them. And there's a limit to what you can actually do at any one time. So to, to be able to focus on the actual release and be talking to you and all your listeners and just basically everybody else, if I was trying to fit gigs in there as well, um, we'd not be able to do it. So something's got to move out of the way and we can play gigs we can play them later um it's part of the reason why we decided to put the album out now um it's basically because there's never a perfect time for it and um i, I think the world kind of needs new music and as a radio presenter it, you, you don't want it all to stop you you want stuff to keep coming and it's it's not a pandemic album, but it feels right. It's an early 21st century album, and this is still the early 21st century. If we wait three years, it's not anymore. It's the late middle, and um, no, it's, it's the right time to put it out. It's just that we can't do it in gig at the same time, which is disappointing, but it simplifies other aspects of it. So you just you work with what you've got. It's the adaptability mm -hmm. thing. You, you can't do that. Okay, we'll do this instead. Yeah, I guess the suspense of just having put an album out there and just having to wait, you know, like not having that immediate feedback you get when you go to a show and you sort of debut a new song. But I guess you have also gotten to play most of the songs live before. 
So I guess that's good. Hmm. Yes, uh, it's um, it's p- part of the thing that I, I think a lot of people don't realise is how long it actually takes mm-hmm. to make a recording if you're not um, a giant band who can just, if, if you've all got jobs, um, you can't just take a week off and go into the studio. And even if you do, you've only spent a week in the studio and they will spend a lot longer than that. It's just compressed time and then they have a bigger team to do everything else. And just uh, sorting out the artwork um, in three different formats is a huge job in itself. I mean, the actual front and back main cover, we should mention that that was local hotel parking, um, who is uh, a collage artist. She does basically scissors. It's all analog. Uh, She cuts stuff out and puts it together. It's not done with Photoshop. Um, She actually lives on the same street as me, coincidentally. which is remarkable in itself. But I mean, there, there are always coincidences, aren't they? Um, she did a fantastic job with it. And I knew vaguely what I wanted for it, uh, gave her a brief. And that was the first thing that she came up with. And yes, that's it. Um, great stuff. So, but that's just the main image, the front, the back and the wraparound. You've then got to do all the actual proper layout and fitting everything into it. There's not just an outside, there's the inside sleeve and you've got the labels for the record or for the CD. And we made it difficult for ourselves by having so many extras with the vinyl, but the you, you can't just lift the vinyl artwork and stick it on a CD uh, template because they're not the same shape. CDs aren't square. Um, and the whole stretching and compressing thing means you've got to lay out the stuff on the back in different order and sequence as well. Um, fortunately, digital, it's a lot simpler because you just have the one image. Um, but it's, it's not enough on its own. You need the other stuff. So, yeah, the, the artwork took probably two months of intense stuff um, afterwards. And you've got to have that in hand before you can start um the, the vinyl pressing cds it's quick you can have it in your hand in two weeks but with vinyl at the moment because of the way that the major labels are doing the seven disc we presses of an album that you've already got but this one's in a different color and we've added some extra stuff um it's just it's clogging up the systems mm-hmm. i've heard there's like 18 month um, backlogs on major vinyl yes footage. it's uh, depending on who, who you're pressing it with um, DMS did ours and they did an absolutely superb job um, placed the order at the beginning of February and they said it'll be about six months which meant it was due right at the end of August and they actually landed it 10 days early um, and to do that in the circumstances that they're in is, is quite incredible but their, their backlog is now eight months and they're just not taking new orders because they've got to get that down. The only way they can do it is to have less in the pipe. Um, eight months is ridiculous. I mean, it's 18 months is absolutely crazy. Um, but the thing about the 18 months thing is if, um, I don't know, insert name of really well-known pop star dies, they'll then jump in and 
pushed through hundreds of thousands of represses of all their back catalogue, and it'll push everybody else's back. Um, we, we were lucky because that didn't happen during the period that we were in and because they were actually managing it really well. But it's, it, it's, it's becoming impossible again uh, because of the over-subscription over um, at the pressing plants. That there aren't many pressing plants, and I think there are only two places in the world that can make the stampers. It's, uh, there was a fire in California, and that place shut down, so there were three. I think there's two now. And that's another backlog. If they're all queuing up to have stampers made, then you, you just you, you are kind of stuck. Um, yeah, and a record store day as well. I mean, it's again, it's just uh, represses of stuff you've already got, but in a different color. And um, they'll say limited edition, but they're, they're at least 5,000. And an independent band will do less than 500 most times. It's, it's, that's not, 5,000 isn't limited in the same way mm -hmm. at all. Um, it's a short run, not a limited run. And it's, yeah, okay, this one's pink. Um, there's another one and it's mint green and there's 5,000 of those. And then we'll do a blue one. And it's not a limited edition. It's just assorted colours of something that we've already got. And there are enough copies of Fleetwood Mac's rumours already out there in charity or thrift shops to mean that nobody needs to press anymore anyway. If, if all the people that wanted them went to these charity shops and picked up for way less, um, that, that would make a bit of space as well. For sure. And I guess that sort of stuff also feeds into, I guess, moving people to slightly more digital platforms. If you look at a lot of people have sort of moved to, I guess, discovering music less out of, I guess, um, record store bins and more out of, I don't know, Bandcamp or Spotify recommendations or something like that. Yes. Um, I think that that probably is the case. Um, I mean, obviously, in a pandemic, you can't go to the shop anyway. Uh, some of them will have websites, but it's sort of it's not the same as actually flicking through mm -hmm. a crate of records, um, and it, it doesn't grab you in the same way as just flicking through and thinking, "What is that?" and not being able to know. Um, lots of record shops have a record player in there; you can ask them, they will play it to you. But it, yeah, that sense of discovery is completely changed mm -hmm. um and with with the algorithm led ones you're also thinking have people paid to be in this list it's um and ultimately some of them will have done um some of it will be just it throwing it out but i mean what leads them to think this links to that if you like this you'll like that and if you listen to, I don't, I don't use Spotify very much at all, but um, um, Apple Music, yeah, because it's, it pays a slightly bigger pittance to the um, artist. But if you get sent a track for the radio, you might think, I quite like that. What else have they got? And you'll go and listen and find out. If that, that's a discovery thing. But I mean, it's, um, and if you really like it, you might buy it, but a physical one. Um, yeah, but it's it, the whole algorithm-driven 
connections it, it's 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 a dark art and it's a mystery mm-hmm. and certainly a, a lot of the playlists it's um yeah uh, there, there's a fiscal aspect to it that isn't always apparent not all of them i'm sure but a lot of it definitely it will be. yeah i like something like the Bandcamp one a bit more because it's sort of Mm. The the recommendations are all almost always recommendations from the artists that you're currently listening to. Yes. So that feels like a community um, instead. Yeah, and it's likely that um, something will have uh, a similar spark to what it made you enjoy, because if it inspires them, it probably will inspire you mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. Um, I think, are you still in limited to recommending three things at once on there? I'm, I think I'm not so, sure yeah. as, as an artist, yeah. It's, um, I suppose you can change them around. I, I, I don't, um, there are too many websites. That's part of the trouble. Um, I mean, there, there are just so many different platforms and they come and go. And yeah, Bandcamp is, is doing a good job. And I should probably spend a bit more time on there than I do. But you've got the ones that you have to maintain, the ones that you have to have a presence on, and you're constantly bombarded by should you be on this new one or not this new one. And they become fashionable and move, and um, you can miss the moment with them and have wasted a lot of time trying to, uh, at MySpace, for Mm -hmm. example. I mean, it just, how many times have they tried to rebrand it? And it just, it had its moment, it's gone. Um, Facebook, I think, is probably eating itself. And just um, the thing that always me the most about that is the functionality. Every time you go in there, they've changed it again. And the button you're looking for is in a different place. Or this won't work in Safari. You'll have to do that in Chrome. Or you can't do that on your phone. You'll have to do it on the laptop. And it just gets constantly to get anything done. Um, very difficult to actually work out what's going on. But um, yeah, that also feels tying into the album. That also feels like another, I guess, facet of the future that was missold. That you know, technology would change everything, which it did. But was it in a good way or in a bad way, or just in a way that nobody had ever imagined it could? Oh, it's unanticipated consequences, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the internet has all the information in the world and all the disinformation in the world at the same time. And it's not easy for people to tell which is which, um, particularly if some of it agrees with what they already think, which may or may not be right. And the, the algorithm driving you down a particular whole thing, I think is, is really quite dangerous for society in, as, as a whole. Uh, plus the sort of outrage culture of, of being perpetually angry about things and um, being told what the new thing you should be angry about every day, um, either on the news or on social media or wherever. Um, it's, um, again, part of a distraction thing. Mm-hmm. There seem to be two sides to that, neither of which seem to be particularly appealing. Sort of one going in the direction of you are angry about something and another side going, this is what you should be angry about. Yes. Um, it's a neither are terribly productive at, for the individual. They'll be productive for someone else, somewhere else in uh, the food chain, shall we say. 
but um, yeah, it's it's not healthy. It's not healthy because um, you, you can't stay that angry forever and um, retain functionality. So something goes. Mm-hmm. Quite wired and tired. Yes, <laughs> and a smokescreen. Mm-hmm. And I, I also have to ask you this one question, since you guys are obviously around the underground music scene a lot, a lot and we're obviously very underground and very pro-underground music station, so you'd have to drop us a few recommendations. What are you listening to right now? Um, best LPs that I've heard this year so far. Um, there's two other local ones I have to mention. I mean, I'm saying local because they are local to me not because they're local artists, because they're all global, but um, the Electric Stars, um, they've been going uh, quite a long time. They've just put out their second album, which uh, took them, I think, um, seven years. Uh, Yeah. Um, So yes, the Electric Stars, definitely worth a listen. Um, We also have Turner. Uh, She's just put out her first album, which is called Daydreams and Stars. And that's absolutely superb. Um, we have... This is in there. Um, local, 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 local. Um, I mean, there's, there's loads. Uh, listen to my radio <laughs> show, because <laughs> they're all in there. Um, but yeah, th- those are the first two that, um, that pop up. I mean, th- they are just both brilliant albums there's a lot of like wonderful new music out there as long as people are ready to reach out for it yeah to to reach out and to be prepared to search um i think many people are still used to being fed music and the the major labels just don't work like that anymore it's it's a process about contraction and um just selling more of less product because um, it's, it's not music to them. They're not interested in music. They're just interested in selling units. And if you only manufacture 10 units, that's obviously less cost than doing an awful lot more. If you sort of compare um, how many number ones in a year there used to be back in 1965 and compare that with last year or the year before, it's, it's halved at least. And if you look at the number of labels, that those would all have been on pretty much different labels, um, whereas now they've all been absorbed into each other. Um, and basically, it's, it's either Sony, Universal, mm-hmm. or Warner, and you would occasionally maybe get one novelty item, perhaps at Christmas, that isn't on those three labels. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's contraction and within the labels it's the number of artists as well that's also contracted so you you might have had i did look at this but it's a while ago uh 27 different number ones in 65 or thereabouts and those would have been on i think it was about 15 or 16 different artists and that's gone down to 10 different number ones and three labels and just, it's basically, it's the same people all the time who are just, and they're, they're only ones that are being played. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, 
the commercial radio stations as well. I mean, they have um, a catalogue, in inverted commas. Essentially, they're playing the same 200 tunes every day, uh, sometimes in a slightly different sequence. Um, I would be in the day job and they'd had the terrible radio stations on. And you can play Radio Bingo. Um, if you know what station it is, you list five songs, you've won in an mm. hour uh, because you know they're all going to come round. Um, some of them, it might take you two hours because they actually play it over the day rather than just repeating every three hours because they assume you're not going to be listening to it. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, it is a massive shame because there is so much music out there that they could be playing instead. Yeah. I've unfortunately been subjected to long drives like in the US so listening to maybe a New York radio station while driving along for about two hours. I'm pretty sure you can hear the same song within an hour. So there oh, yes. is stuff like that. And, you know, as you yeah. get closer to, I guess, the sort of hub cities, the bigger radio stations, the, rep the repetition just gets a lot more. But I guess people forget that if you don't like what's happening over there, you can go and find new stuff on your own rather than just listening to stuff that you already know and like. Yes. Um, I think that's part of the trouble is that people aren't aware that there are other options available uh, because for such a long time, those were the only options. And for a while out of that time, it did work. Um, it just, you don't have the variance in sound with the mainstream music anymore. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're all recording it in essentially the same studio with pretty much the same producer and they're typing the same parameters into the reverb buttons or whatever. And it's, if you're designing a car, it's going to produce the same car as the one that came out last time. If they're trying to say, this is what's popular at the moment, let's make another one of those. Then they're intentionally making mm -hmm. exactly the same thing again, basically. And also, I guess, using the same songwriters and things like that. Yes. And I think it's it's a bit like it was in the pre-Beatle days in sort of the, the late 50s and the very early 60s, 61, 62, until they exploded. It just, it was very lame, I think is, is probably the best word. It wasn't, nothing was happening. You have rock and roll, and that had had its moment. And as far as the mainstream labels were, it, it's... It had gone. But there were no consequences um, of the music. To, yeah, it, it just, it happened. And it's, it's, I don't like background music. It's, um, it, what, what we're trying to do with the album is, is make something that it should be listened mm -hmm. to and interacted with. And um, it's, the, the, the record companies don't, don't want to do that. The, the, the guys, they're just, um, it, they, they don't take the risks anymore. It's, it's a shame. It's everybody's loss. But of course, there is a lot of stuff out there for people to look forward to and hopefully to interact with as they're listening and sort of have their own interpretations of it. And your music is certainly in that category. So thank you. So yeah, I hope I hope people go check out the album, which we'll also be playing on the show before after the interview as it goes on throughout the show. Um, 
So thanks so much for joining me on the show, chatting with me about this fantastic album. Uh, for those listening at home, again, it's the Museum, it's Museum of Tomorrow by the Speed of Sound. Um, the record was out as of yesterday, 17th of September, and also about many years after their first album, which was also the 17th of September. You can go catch their current record on Bigster Records, bigsterrecords.bandcamp.com. This was really fun. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. That was, that was great. I really enjoyed the chat. Me as well, yes. That was my interview with John. Oh, I could have just kept talking to him. In fact, I did after the show about other non-musical interests as well. <clears throat> Cricket. <clears throat> I will never get over how Queen's big field with a very overt diamond on it is called the Cricket Field. Still, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. I really enjoyed doing this. Museum of Tomorrow is out now. Grab a copy from bigsterrecords.bandcamp.com. Do remember to tune in to The Yellow Bridge Road, the regular one-hour show, every Sunday evening from 8 to 9 p.m. for your fix of the absolute best of the British music scene. Write into the show and all of that. Email yellowbridgeroad at gmail.com. The show is also on Twitter. You can find it at the handle CFRC. That's all I've got for you today. If you're listening in from Canada, have a great rest of your afternoon. If you're tuning in from the UK, good evening. I'll be back this Sunday. In the meanwhile, you keep washing your hands, listening to absolutely great music. See you all on Sunday. Goodbye. <laughs>